to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster recovery, crisis management, crisis communications, emergency response, and anything that can be related to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there's anything specific you would like us to talk about on the show, uh, please feel free to go to the Voice America page uh, for Preparing for the Unexpected, and there's a little button there that says uh, send host a message uh, or an email. I forget the exact wording, but you can send me a message. I do get all the emails, and uh, depending on what you're asking for, we'll try and see and get somebody on the show to talk about the subject uh, you want to hear about, or I'll get in touch with you directly and try and get you on the show uh, to talk about a subject. So feel free to do that. Uh, I also want to remind everybody that I will be in Manila, Philippines, November 13th to 16th at the TEAMS 25th Annual Conference. That's the International Emergency Management Society uh, 25th Annual Conference. So uh, I'll be talking to a lot of people there, and you'll start uh, after the November date, you'll start hearing shows posted of uh, chats with different people from around the globe, um, and I'll start putting them on the show. And today, uh, as you know, uh, I've said it so many times, it's almost like a broken record. I am an avid reader. I have lots of books, and I'm always looking at books uh, and reading to learn new new thoughts, new ways of doing things, you know, different viewpoints, even if they're 100% opposite from my own. You know, I do a lot of reading. And I came across a book uh, just a little while ago, and, and it was the title that actually caught, caught my attention. And it was, I better look at it here before I forget make sure I don't say it wrong, uh, Crisis Communications in Canada. And I'm lucky enough to have the author with me today, Mr. Duncan Kerber. Duncan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, congratulations on the book. I know it's actually a fairly recent release, so congratulations. I'm sure it took a lot of uh, work and uh, effort to pull that together. Yes, it was actually uh, about six or seven years of work. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is a lot of work. So can you give um, our listeners uh, a little bit of uh, a biography of yourself, you know, what, what you do, how you got into all of this, and, you know, how you got into actually writing a book? Because I know it's not your only book, but this is the one yep. we're going to talk about. Well, I kind of came at this kind of roundabout way. So I was a journalist for 10 years, and also I was an academic, so I was uh, working in academia. Uh, and right now I'm actually a professor of business communication at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, but I've taught at other schools. York University uh, was one that I taught at for about five years. And that's where uh, I actually got an interest in public relations crisis communication. So I was assigned back in uh, 2011 to teach a course uh, that had a strange title when I first encountered it. It was Practical Studies in Damage Control. <laughs> and um, at the time, there was no uh, Canadian book 
on crisis communication. So there were no textbooks. Everything was American, which are great. I mean, these are great textbooks. But we just didn't have, uh, you know, a Canadian angle, Canadian case studies. So at that point, I thought, hey, here's, here's a, an opportunity. Uh, why don't I work up a textbook that I could give to my students? Now, like I said before, it took me six or seven years to get that together. Um, but it was in those classrooms with students discussing uh, the crises of the day uh, that were on, you know, on everyone's mind. The, the ideas mm-hmm. came together for this uh, book, and it is uh, just came out last fall, uh, 2017, with the University of Toronto Press. And the point of the book, uh, my first book was actually a writing textbook because I was a journalist, but the point of this book is to um, see what's uniquely Canadian about crisis communication and also bring together the academic study of the field because I, you you know yourself that um, typically this has been uh, you know the, little theory um, you know not a lot of an academic angle to it it's more been about practitioners in the field giving their anecdotal advice so the book exists to kind of bring together tested academic study of the field with case studies Canadian case studies um, and then maybe students and researchers can build on that well, congratulations, and you actually uh, have me thinking of a couple of questions that, that uh, just popped into my head while you were talking. Sure. You, you mentioned the um, you know a lot of the existing documentation or books or periodicals, uh, you know whatever you want to call them, at one point didn't really have a Canadian uh, kind of viewpoint or or um, perception or perspective. What would you say is is that Canadian perspective? Is it more of just the case studies, or is there a kind of a different uh, perspective that Canadians have? Um, that was actually something that one of the peer reviewers, because this book was reviewed, obviously, by three professors during the editing process, and one of them wanted more on, on that angle. So what is unique? And it, was, it took me a long time to really figure that out, because, again, very little has been written, so I couldn't necessarily depend on other professors or researchers' studies. Um, and in the first uh, introductory chapter, I talk a bit about the uniqueness of Canadian studies. And I think what I found was, and certainly in the case studies, tended to focus on what matters to Canadians, so healthcare, care, uh, uh, natural resources, um, food contamination cases. Uh, as we remember the, the Maple Leaf Foods case from a few years ago. Oh, yes. That yep. kind of thing. And on a theoretical side, people are concerned about um, communities and how they perceive a crisis, because a crisis in, in one community may not be a crisis in another. Uh, and a, a big focus on the media, because um, we are connected as Canadians primarily through the media. We are a big country, um, mm-hmm. and the media connects us. So the uh, what, I, what I wrote in the book was that you know, that, that media focus has been so important to the recent uh, academic study of, of crisis communication in, in my work and in other people's work as well. Okay. Uh, my other question that popped into my head is you mentioned academia and your, your practitioners. What are your suggestions on linking those two? Because I, I've been finding as more time goes by and more guests that I speak to, 
And I, I've speak, spoken to all kinds of uh, different people from different backgrounds, different industries, you know, authors, uh, people that have been in the industry two, three years, and those that have been around 30, 40 years. How do you bring, in your suggestions from what you've seen and as, as an academic, how do you bring the academic field together with practitioners so that they don't seem to be kind of separate? You know, yeah. and I'm, I'm finding that a lot, that they, they tend to be separate. But what are your suggestions on how to bring those yeah. together? Um, well, in part, the reason I wrote this book, it's a textbook. I mean, it's easy to read. It is not your, your dense, heavy academic journal article or something like that um, that maybe, um, you know, professional audience wouldn't want to read. You know, they wouldn't want to sit down and read that kind of thing. So it is written as you know, accessible, open, um, that professionals um, can get into. They don't have to have any background in it. Um, you know, there's no jargon and things like that. But mm-hmm. I think more importantly with this book is I'm hoping this trains kind of the next generation of practitioners. It's not just for researchers. I mean, I do hope researchers will cite it and use it as a you know starting point. But I hope that actually the students, and I'm using it, for example, in a fourth-year class in public relations this fall at Brock University, um, I'm hoping those students, when they get out there and they get into the workforce because they want to be in public relations, that this will give them that grounding um, and also spur them on to the thought, as the book mentions, that we need to ground crisis communication practice in theoretical ideas and also test mm-hmm. test these strategies response strategies things like that and not simply go on hunches you know or mm-hmm. or, or you know our anecdotal experience so i'm kind of hoping this book fills that gap i don't know about people who have been in the field for 30 years <laughs> they're going to have their own you know opinions and and they know what works for them in their experience but maybe there'll be a shift here if enough people in this book has been used, um, just last year, I mean, it only came out and it's already uh, been used in a number of PR programs and crisis communication classes uh, where students are not necessarily going on to be researchers, they're not going on to do PhDs, but maybe these ideas will stick in their mind um, when they move into the field. So that's my little contribution, I hope. Well, I think that's a good contribution because I'm, the Teams conference that I mentioned at the beginning, it's attended by a lot of uh, academics, you know, people from universities. In fact, it's going to be uh, run at um, University of San Tomas or something. I forgot the full name, but in in uh, Manila itself. And there's going to be a lot of academics. But then sometimes I end up talking with practitioners, you know, the people who are actually on the fields and just say, yeah, yeah that's all fine, you know, but this is how it really happens. So I've mm-hmm. always... I've always wondered, you know, why the separation? And you mentioned something great in your uh, opening uh, biography uh, talk there. You mentioned damage control courses, and yeah. now there's more courses. So, you know, uh, that that's how why I was wondering how you can bring those together. And, and also remember that the, the academic study of crisis communication is very young. So it's very new. This is not... You know, we don't. This isn't English literature studies or something where you have a canon of, of uh, you know, readings and, and and materials and theorists back. You know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years. It's mm-hmm. actually very young. When I was doing this book, I mean, I didn't have to look really 
before 1995, when I was looking at sources and, and doing literature reviews and things like that of the field. Um, that's not a you know that's not a, a, an old field. So um, to expect everybody you know suddenly to be to be on this you know practitioners on this uh, you know is a bit too much. Um, but maybe in 10 years. Uh, people will be more well-versed in this. Um, just as a typical field grows, it starts to spread out and disseminate knowledge to practitioners uh, over time. Well, and you even mentioned that you're going to be using this book, um, if I remember correctly now, using this book in a uh, public relations uh, kind of crisis management course or yeah. component of a course, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that helps actually train you know, some, hopefully, <laughs> some future uh, professionals, whether they get it, are aiming to get into the field directly or if they, you know, fall into it, uh, you know, by accident, like like yourself uh, mentioned, and I actually fell into it by accident. So that that's good. This will definitely be, hopefully, one of those keys that help move that along. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm hoping. And so, I mean, we needed something like this in Canada. If you go to the, you know, the, the literature is primarily American. I mean, it has been a big growth in academic study of crisis communication, uh, and there's just so many articles. There's, there's new journals uh, from the American side of things, but we just needed something. <laughs> we just needed some sort of, sort of material to get to, to get going on this, and I'm just hoping that provides uh, that platform. Uh, and there's more of these courses. I mean, I was surprised when I was doing the proposal to the University of Toronto Press for this book. They asked me in the proposal to to survey how many courses there are across Canada at the university level, at the uh, college level, that actually focus on crisis management, crisis communication. And I was surprised at doing that research that my course was one of many uh, across Canada that are actually doing this. So these these courses are pro- popping up in a lot of different programs across the country, and it's only going to get bigger and better as things go along. There's going to be more and more interest in this field, I think. Um, specifically, how do we you know, respond to these crises when they happen, whether it's uh, you know on TV or whether we respond on Twitter, Facebook, um, that kind of a thing. So I think it's only going to get more and more uh, uh, interesting and, and get more and more developed as, as the years pass. Well, that actually brings up an interesting question, because you mentioned you know it's a growing area, you know, um, why do you think that is? You know, we, we've had earthquakes throughout history, you know, fires and all kinds of things, but why do you think that the interest or, or even just the, the, the um, understanding of crisis management is, is growing? Um, well, I talk in the beginning of the book a little bit about the society that we are in now, if the interconnected society, particularly networked, um, and how we depend so much on each other. So when something goes wrong in one part of the system, whether that's on the other side of the earth or whether it's, you know, downtown Toronto, um, it can cause a crisis in operations or in reputations. And uh, I think, I mean, I, there's no proof of this. You know, you'd have to be a statistician. You'd have to get into numbers. Um, but it feels like we are having more and more crises. So I think in public relations programs, they need this kind of a course. And the other thing I noticed when I was doing this book is you can see all of public relations through the lens of crisis communication. 
So you could just take a course on crisis communication, and you would have to engage with everything, the, you know, all the main theories of public relations. Um, and it's all encapsulated in crisis communication. So I think I say in the book that crisis communication may be the most important topic when things go wrong. <laughs> that is probably when you are really tested as a practitioner, right? When things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a key moment. So I think that's why these programs are putting these courses for students today in there. And personally, I just find this a fascinating topic. I mean, my early research actually coming out of my PhD was in media history. And I've also, as I mentioned earlier, I've, re- I've written a writing textbook. <laughs> completely mm-hmm. seems completely un- unrelated. Um, but actually, the crisis communication material um, is just inherently fascinating. And we have a crisis upon crisis every single day these days, right? And I'm sure yeah. later in this program we'll talk about social media. Just today, there's something, mm-hmm. every day somebody's doing something that costs them their job or reputation. So I think that's why it's just, it's so important these days. Well, it is interesting because you can have a, a situation at an organization or in a community, and if your communications are all scatterbrained and all over the place, you can compound that crisis or disaster into something even worse, like you're creating yeah. another one. So... That's uh, interesting. Uh, We've actually come to the end of our first segment already. So we're going to take a break. Uh, We're talking with Duncan Kerber, the author of Crisis Management in Canada, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Duncan Kerber, the author of Crisis Management in Canada. And Duncan, in the first set, you gave us a lot of uh, interesting uh, information and perspectives on crisis management and the field. I'm wondering if we can talk about, uh, we'll start off, I, I know where we, I, I want to go to social media uh, stuff eventually, but uh, I'm wondering if we could talk about, you know, what is a crisis? Can you define a crisis, you know, in, you know, in, in simple terms so people can understand it? Because yeah. I, I, I'm talking with so so many people that that uh, some of them tend to uh, you know, everything is a crisis. You know, no matter what it is, they just define it as a crisis, and that's not necessarily the case. I think. Yes, when I was working on my book, that I mean that had to be a whole chapter. I had to deal with that. Um, a few years ago, I was actually um, doing some research on. Uh, Rob Ford, uh, those of you who, who live in the Toronto area, you know Rob Ford was the former mayor of Toronto. Oh, and oh I think people major... around the globe, I think people yeah. around the globe know who he is. Yeah, everybody <laughs> oh. should remember Rob Ford's crisis where, I mean, he had a lot of crises. So uh, the big one was that we, we found out that he had uh, got involved with drugs and while he was mayor. And, he had, you know, he had a lot of personal issues. They came to light and, and uh, reflected poorly on him, and I was working on the research there because uh, I was I was struggling with the concept that he had a lot of support, so he he always had strong support no matter what crisis he faced, and it struck me as strange that he could go through some of these awful public crises and still come out the other end, you know, with forty percent support as he always had. And it made me think that there's a problem in defining what a crisis is, because most of us would think if we were found out, you know, we were the mayor and we, we had been found out to be smoking crack or doing, uh, you know, these, these things in our personal lives, we would have to quit, we would have to resign, our careers would be over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't. So what I, when I started digging into that concept, and, it, and it, it plays out in one of the chapters of my book, is that the definition of a crisis is problematic. So you can probably come up with 25 different definitions. So usually in the academic literature, they were about the disruption of operations. So something happens that causes typically an organization. So they don't often talk about individuals. They talk about organizations um, and something that shuts down the organization. Um, now, mm. what troubled me with that is it, it you know, it doesn't deal with individuals. Um, some people keep you know, rolling on with their careers, politicians, sports athletes. Um, so I thought maybe I need to dig into this and find out another way of looking at crisis. So in that article about Rob Ford and then later in, in the book from last year, I came up with this idea that a crisis is actually, it's not a thing. It's not a meteor coming from another planet, you know, hitting Canada and we have to deal with it. You know, the natural disaster, which is the common crisis that we have to have to face. The, the big crisis today is a crisis of words, crisis of meaning. Um, and I call it in the article in the book, a discursive break. So that means when we transgress some boundary of meaning uh, in, the, in our society, in our communities, whatever that community is, um, we create 
a crisis. Um, and we can do that as an individual. So we can say something wrong uh, that our community doesn't like, and the community complains about this, and that could be a crisis. Um, so the definition is a discursive break as a transgression expands the idea of crisis uh, to other things. For example, instead of just natural disasters or product failures um, or mismanagement of a corporation or whatever that could be a crisis, we can also look at uh, a tweet on, you know, on Twitter that might cause someone to lose their job or whatever. So that was my contribution in the book and article was that we can expand the definition of a crisis um, to a discursive break that somehow cast that person or that organization out of favor with some community. And also it means that we have to look at who our communities are. So who are we, you know, who are we dependent on for authority that we have? Um, because some things that we say will annoy or um, you know, call, get a condemnation from a community of people, and from another community, they may not care. So a crisis mm-hmm. is not always a crisis in every single community. Um, and I think that was uh, kind of an epiphany that I had when I was doing the research, um, that it is not so simple. It's not a thing from out there that attacks us and causes a disruption of operations. It is something that we have done. We have transgressed. Um, and often dealing with meanings in our world. Well, you, you mentioned social media and, and uh, you know tweets, uh, and we know uh, I'm not going to mention, but there are some people in the world that use Twitter a lot uh, to communicate their thoughts, shall we say? Uh, yeah. You know, which aren't always favorable to uh, the recipients out there. <laughs> how how do you think social media has helped and or? not helped crisis management? Has it increased you know, the, the need to have crisis management? Um, in the academic literature, there's obviously two sides of this. So there's, there's predominantly, though, a focus on, or has been a focus on social media as a positive during a crisis. But typically, they're not focused on crises that were caused by social media. So they're focused on crises that occurred sort of in the real world, if you want to use that term, and how mm-hmm. is crisis, how is social media used to then deal with or communicate to an audience, right? So social media becomes a tool that you can use, uh, and there's a lot of literature on how that works and how great it is to have social media, certainly during a natural disaster, um, when phone lines are down, but the Internet's still up and you can communicate to people and things like that. But what hasn't been studied often is what's unique about a social media crisis. So what, you know, what is unique to that crisis that's born through a tweet or born through a Facebook post, that kind of a thing. And, and that's something I think that's a new strain in the, the academic study of crisis communication. What's unique about this new medium, and not just a tool, but as actually a, a spurring on of crises. And we see a lot nowadays... Um, we see a lot of people who make an innocuous post on Twitter, and they're mm-hmm. fired the next day. <laughs> you well, know, or yes. the stock price of the organization drops immediately, as we saw with Elon Musk. I don't know if you uh, yes, followed his little yes. crisis that he had there, um, talking about taking his company private, and suddenly, in that tweet, his stock price went down, and, and it caused this, this stir. 
Um, and, and I consider these kind of the new kind of crisis. It's not very helpful, um, these mm-hmm. things. So there's two sides to that equation of social media today is, yeah, positive when you're in the moment, but let's focus also on how it can cause these things to happen. Do you think that you the crises get caused because social media isn't fully understood, like what it can actually do? You know, back in the day, you could maybe say a comment and it was kind of brushed off because not a lot of people heard it. But now if you say a comment, you know, with social media, everybody hears it. And to your point, people can lose their jobs. You know, so is it because social media is so new and it just isn't understood? I think people don't understand who their audience is, who they are speaking to often when they put things out there. Um, the one I'm thinking of is the other day, those of you in Canada who are listening to this, you will probably be familiar with uh, Maxim Bernier, the, the politician for the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he just yeah. Uh, had a little controversy where he was critiquing our uh, Prime Minister's multiculturalism policies. And he wrote about diversity, he said, going too far. I don't know if, you, if you've seen those tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a classic case of... Um, an uproar occurring because those tweets are not going just to his followers that are in the Conservative Party. There's another audience out there that are watching, that are monitoring, that are reading, maybe retweets if they don't follow him um, all the time. And it's among that audience that, that a crisis was created. Um, and so then these things, and, and often these politicians, uh, celebrities, singers, uh, have to deal with the flack that they get after that. They don't realize they're not just speaking to the devoted on Twitter because you can't obviously do that. On Facebook, you can, you know, if you've got a, a private profile and you only allow certain people in, same with Instagram, you know, you put it private, you let some people in, you can make sure that everybody getting your messages is of the same mindset. But on something like Twitter, it's just everybody. Uh, and I think people aren't realizing that um, they're speaking to everybody uh, with different persuasions, you know, different political orientations. Um, and that is where a lot of the flack comes in, uh, where they think they're saying perfectly normal ideas, things that fit with their ideology, and then they're getting the flack from all those other people that aren't, you know, don't subscribe to that. Um, and that can waste a lot of time. You know, they've got to deal with these crises. Sometimes they... They morph into the mass media and, and that kind of a thing. They get reported on the CBC, or, uh, you know, in, in the Toronto Star, uh, and then you know, that becomes a pain for them to have to deal with. So that's probably one of the big problems, that lack of recognition of the, the audience that they're speaking to with their tweets. And is it simply because, the, you know, what you say can be retweeted to, you know, so many others that it just, you know, your uh, to use your word, innocuous you know, tweet is yeah. suddenly passed on to so many others. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure we could all say something that would anger somebody. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like every statement that we, you know, there, there are things you could say politically, Alex, that you could say on Twitter that really aren't a crisis in the sense of uh, your friends or followers or people, but there's got to be somebody out there that probably disagree with you and might think that reflects badly uh, on you or your organization or whatever. And if they make a big enough stink about it, um, they can draw attention to that. Um, and it's not necessarily people going on Twitter and saying, 
um, inflam- I mean, inflammatory things. I mean, there's some people who do that on purpose, mm-hmm. um, and, then, and they expect they're going to get you know, that kind of reaction. But it just lately, there's been a lot of this people just speaking as they normally would on issues, but because these are sometimes bigger issues in society, um, they're they're attracting uh, notoriety for positions that may seem controversial to their opponents, and also in, in partisanship. Of course, uh, you know, the enemies of politicians are watching their Twitter accounts, monitoring them, just waiting and to jump and, uh, and, and, you know, create a crisis in a sense um, by positioning their, the, this other politician's comments as wrong or, uh, you know, and that kind of a thing. So that it's very a uh, dangerous game, right, when you're out in, in social media. You almost want to just retreat from it. <laughs> So that actually makes me think of a couple of uh, questions here. Do you think with social media, people are being a little oversensitive? You know, because now they've got a, if they are trying to find something wrong with a politician, they may not like or, you know, uses the wrong verb, you know, in a sentence to make it seem like it's something else. You know, do you think people are oversensitive and responding that in a way they wouldn't normally? And that creates, you know, unnecessary crises? I think so. I mean... We are, social media is funny because it is a broadcast medium, so you're broadcasting to many people, uh, but at the same time, it's a very personal medium, so we put our personal thoughts, and, and, and um, one of the research areas that I've been looking in lately um, is the idea of the faux pas. So before social media, you might be at a party, you might be making a speech, you're an off-the-cuff speech to your friends at, a, at an event. And you might make a faux pas. You, know, you might just say something off the cuff. You weren't giving it a lot of thought. Maybe it comes across to that small audience um, as maybe inappropriate, <laughs> you know, like a joke or something like that. Um, now, in the old days before social media, that would stay in the room. And there mm-hmm. wouldn't be really any consequences of that. But because social media is still a personal medium, it just kind of, it's our thoughts of the day, you know, at any... A lot of people have these things called hot takes that are just, mm-hmm. you know, in the moment kind of thoughts about things. Um, that that environment, um, you know, that we have to, you know, take a step back and go, you know, a lot of people are just saying things off the cuff. They haven't given it a lot of thought. Let's back off a bit. But it's easy in the anonymous social media world to just attack people who say things off the cuff and right. raise a lot of, you know, notoriety about this. Um, in maybe ways that wouldn't have happened 30, 40 years ago for these kind of things where communication to the public was usually very official and very calculated. Um, so, I, I mean, I would like people to kind of back off a bit um, on the criticism and maybe uh, wait for more context or more development of thought from whoever wrote the tweet. Um, but it's very easy these days with the quickness of social media to, to jump on people. Um, for things that it maybe wouldn't be as big a deal if they said it at a cocktail party to somebody. Do you think that you know, that kind of makes some people not want to talk with the media or you know not convey messages, which then creates another crisis because you know you're not sharing information with us, and it's you know, as a PR person or a media spokesperson or a company president, you know they may not want to say anything because no matter what they're going to they say, may yeah. get reinterpreted as something else. Like, is that well, that's a, what happened a potential with Bernier. danger, too? That's what happened with Bernier the other day is 
I mean, he had, just today he had uh, uh, some tweets with um, uh, with one of the journalists of the CBC, you know, going back and forth because he said she misrepresented his tweets. Uh, and then she said, well, why don't you interview with me, do an interview? Uh, and why don't we talk about this? And he, he didn't want to talk to her, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, there's a tendency to do that. I think in the first place, you just have to be more careful online. There's a fine line between cultivating that audience and promoting certain positions and saying too much off the cuff and saying, uh, you know, not calculating and thinking about what you're saying and just throwing things out there every day. There's a fine line there. If uh, if these things spiral out of control, as we saw with the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, um, com- you know, kind of saying that, that Bernier shouldn't have said those things, you know, then it's up to the parties to have to deal with these issues, mm-hmm. and it can become a big deal. Uh, so it's just about taking more care in those, in those tweets, which is challenging, I guess. And I guess in some some instances, you know, it, and I I know we've all seen it, you know, tweets that just go out and you go, well, what you even bother sending that for? It means nothing. You know, like the Facebook post, you know, here's what I had for lunch. Who cares? You know, yeah. why send it out there? <laughs> because I guess there's a belief that you're you're connecting with your audience. You're looking like an average person. You know, you're you're like everybody, a regular person. You know, regular guys often. You know, as the cliche goes, um, but. Sometimes it goes a little too far, uh, and some people are tweeting so much mm-hmm. that you're bound to, the more you tweet, you're bound to fall into some problems here and there um, without even realizing it. That's true, yes. Well, we've come to the end of our second segment. Today we're talking with Duncan Kerber, the author of Crisis Management in Canada, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. 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 News
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Duncan Kerber, the author of Crisis Communication in Canada. I think I accidentally said crisis management uh, at the end of the last break, but it's Crisis Communication in Canada. So sorry about that, Duncan. No problem. Um, in uh, this segment, I'd like to talk to something that uh, you bring up in your book about ethics. What are the role? What's the role of ethics in uh, a crisis, and not just the management of a crisis, but also the communication of a of a crisis? You know, the 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 whole gamut, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that often comes up with people who aren't that familiar with crisis communication, uh, the research into it. Um, people tend to believe that crisis communication is, you know, the work of the spin doctor. So just mm-hmm. doing everything for the uh, client, you know, to solve the client's problems, that, uh, which can sometimes be unethical if you're just focusing on the client's problems. But one of the great things about the academic research into crisis communication is that it never studies uh, with that perspective in mind. It's always interested in how the client can satisfy the audience. So whoever is affected by the crisis, the number one goal in the research tends to be how can we solve the problem for them. And the assumption is that if you solve the problem for your audience, whether that's customers, clients, stakeholders, whatever it is, um, that that will benefit you. In turn, you are serving the audience as opposed to simply trying to get the crisis over so you can get back to making money or you know, have your business running and that kind of a thing. So most of the – and the predominance in the academic literature is the study of crisis response strategies, not prevention. I mean, there's not a lot actually written on prevention. But most of the, the research is like if you have a crisis, it's too late to prevent it. How do we respond, not in a way that is going to just bring down the crisis for the sake of bringing down the crisis, but how do we respond um, so that our audience, you know, is satisfied? And that is inherently an ethical approach if your audience is happy with this. And in the book, one of the case studies I talk about is the famous one in Canada a few years ago was Maple Leaf Foods. They had a crisis of uh, uh, listeriosis bacteria that mm-hmm. got into the production system, uh, you know, of their their meat processing plant, and um, the affected meat, cold cuts and things like that, ended up killing a good number of their customers, which is probably the worst worst possible crisis you could come up with. And in the book, I, I that case study, I analyzed the ethical approach of Michael McCain, the the, the uh, the leader of Maple Leaf Foods during that crisis. And, you know, in the book I talk about how he, he spoke, um, you know, apologetically um, he, he, to, the, to his audience, to the public. They took out a lot of ads uh, on TV and in the newspaper. 
uh, and they, you know, spoke as they really cared. He really cared that this had happened to his audience. He admitted fault, which is inherently ethical. Um, rather than hiding behind lawyers and, and, and avoiding responsibility, he took responsibility. And as a result, Maple Leaf Foods has returned to its position as a you know, dominant in meat processing in Canada. Um, and that's a classic case of approaching crisis communication ethically. Um, even though that might make you look bad, when you solve the problems of the audience, you get that goodwill, I think, returned back to you. Um, you know, it's kind of like a karma kind of idea. Can, can the almost the opposite occur? You, you, you are still in a crisis mode. You know, things are still not going well, and have the um, audience, I guess, you know, the public behind you, or can you actually have something solved and still not have the public behind you? Well, I mean, if, if the communication is not focused, for example, on apologizing, um, admitting fault, then of course that can can make the crisis last longer. It can create even more problems. Um, uh, in cases where the public is not with you at the beginning, you know, they're, they're totally against you. Poor or unethical crisis communication can just make things extremely bad. Um, if you remember the uh, lac megantic uh, mm-hmm. train derailment a few years ago, that it, where the, uh, these tanker trains exploded in a Quebec town, and after the uh, the leader of the company had to come up and do crisis communication, and he did an awful, awful job. You can find it on YouTube. Yes, uh, his I've... name was Burkhart. Burkhart was the yes, Burkhart. Yeah, the, the the CEO or something of the company, and he did such an awful job at crisis communication, just blaming others, not taking responsibility, uh, that uh, it just spurred things on even more. I mean. He did a press conference where he was standing outside, and there were journalists surrounding him. And and on the outside of the journalists, there were citizens from the town yelling at him. Uh, And it was just the worst-case scenario, which I talk about in the book. Uh, And that just spurred things on. Now, in both cases, uh, they still were going to face legal suits. So we're talking about ethics. The law is kind of a different side of things. Those companies still had to deal with lawsuits, and I, I believe Maple Leaf Foods paid out a lot of money to mm-hmm. affected, um, you know, affected people. Uh, a lot of times, people don't want to use ethical crisis communication because they think it'll make things uh, legally worse. You know, admitting mm-hmm. to fault and things like that. Um, but I believe you got to win that court of public opinion, uh, and that will create that goodwill. That'll create that bubble of support around your company. Um, you're still going to go to court, <laughs> no matter what you say or do, if you do nothing or you do, you do something. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe the court of public opinion is often more important than Burkhardt in, that, in the Lacomegantic case um, made that worse. I mean, he didn't help himself with uh, blaming others, which is unethical uh, in, in the moment. And if memory serves correctly, too, he said something about, I thought it would be better to manage the crisis in my office in Chicago or something yeah. like that. Rather yeah. than be here, you know, which is crazy. <laughs> I know. That, I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you think common sense would come come to play here? Uh, you even think? if you don't have any training in crisis communication, you think just think common sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, Michael McCain, he did have um, some very important crisis communication advice, you know, from from practitioners. 
um, they knew what they were doing and they, they helped him lead along. But he was still the perfect candidate, um, well-spoken, uh, you know, seemed honest. He wasn't faking it. He didn't seem uncomfortable, you know, apologizing to the public. Uh, and that really, really helped uh, that company. Uh, you know, in both cases, there were, there were deaths. You know, in, mm-hmm. in town there were deaths, and then you know with the meat products there were deaths. But Maple Leaf Foods survived thanks to that ethical approach uh, that Michael uh, McCain used. Yeah, I even remember being shocked when uh, a TV commercial came on one day. That I was sitting there and just went, "Wow!" <laughs> you know, you know, I work in the business continuity field for 21 years, and that was the very first time I actually saw something like that that kind of touched me. Like, wow, that's. That's unbelievable. And I actually felt good hearing it. Like, wow, someone's standing up and taking responsibility. Yeah, and also in the academic study of crisis communication, that is one of the few positive cases of crisis communication, so effective crisis communication. Most of the research studies are about failures, things Mm -hmm. going wrong. And Maple Leaf Foods is one of the few cases where Everything actually went right. They they did everything right. They recovered, um, and I think we need. I certainly I'd like to see more studies of that as opposed to always looking at the, you know, the negatives, the failures. Although the failures are very interesting too. We learn from those. We have to learn from the positives too. You know, yeah. We have to learn the things to what things we need to do right, as well as the things what not to do. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You you bring up, brought up a good point about legal. Um, with communications, you know, a lot of times legal gets involved, you know, when they make things, what's the term, legalese language, yeah. you know, what do you, what are your comments on legal's role in crisis communications? Should they be involved? Should they not be involved? Like, how, how do you think they fit in or should fit in? Well, I was looking at this angle for, for just a small part of the book, um, you know, I was looking at that legal angle. And there are some American studies of crisis communication law, and they wanted to examine whether, um, you know, clients would get into somehow more trouble if they use these strategies of apology, um, you know, admitting blame and things like that. And, and the studies, the American studies, found that there really wasn't, you know, it didn't make things worse to use kind of the classic crisis communication strategies. It didn't make anything worse. And actually, I believe mm-hmm. in some provinces in Canada, there are laws that allow people to apologize, to admit blame, uh, that kind of a thing, which in my book I talk about, uh, you know, and in the book I have a chapter where it gives all the possible strategies that, you know, academic research has uncovered. Uh, and then I mention, is the is apology the king of strategies? You know, that seems to be certainly tested in the academic literature as helping things get better. But uh, in terms of legal, they're often concerned about legal liability. So we don't want to admit to anything, because later that's going to be tested in court and we don't want anything like that. But the studies in, in American literature um, say, don't, wor- don't worry about that. Don't worry about saying that you're at fault. And in many cases, actually saying you're at fault, giving sympathy to the victims, things like that, um, will actually lower damages, um, as some of these studies found. Because, uh, you know, when that evidence is presented in court, that, you know, they tried to solve these problems, um, it makes things that much better. But if you're just fighting back, hiding behind, you know, the legal department, mm-hmm. uh, then 
it's really not going to help you in, in the long run. And I mentioned earlier the court of public opinion. Um, you know, things are going to be much worse in that court uh, if, you, if you take the advice that you can't say much or you have to put out vague statements. At a later date, we will we'll talk about this. In many ways, it's just better to get it out there. Is, is apologizing the same as taking responsibility? Um, in, in the literature, it depends on, and I talk about this in the book as well, is you have to have a certain kind of apology. There are, as I mentioned, half apologies. Some of the worst mm-hmm. apologies are where people say, to those I may have offended, you know, or if I offended you, you know, I'm sorry. But, for example, Michael McCain's apology was full and complete, and they admitted to these deaths that their products caused these deaths. Um, so that's a really full apology. So those are considered the best apologies that you can give to an audience or ones that are full, complete, that admit responsibility for this. Uh, and, and don't go halfway. I, that's got to be tough to. Uh, there must be a tough balance between that, though, right? And how do you do that? Uh, you know, and bring with today's social media. How do you? What would be your considerations to make find that happy balance? You know, uh, well, you don't apo- a- you don't apologize for you don't apologize for things you didn't do. <laughs> I mean, sometimes there are people who will just apologize by reaction. Uh, and you also, certainly in some realms, for example, politics, you have to remember that a lot of crises are, in a sense, created by the opposition. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to apologize if you believe firmly that what you were doing was right or what you said was right. Uh, and you're really only trying to satisfy your, you know, in partisan politics, your community, whether your party or the people who follow you. Um, but if it's in the realm of, you know, a company and it hurts somebody, you know, product, then, you know, you have to apologize. You have to uh, right away respond quickly. Um, there's no partisanship there, right? That's, that's you know, your, your phones blew up and hurt people or something like that. That's happened with Samsung. You've got to get that solved right away because you have one audience, customers. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, so you have to be mm-hmm. quick about that. But, yeah, in other fields, you know, entertainment, celebrities, you know, you might want to take a moment to think about whether you need to apologize. You don't want to be apologizing and apologizing for everything if you, you know, if it was innocuous or uh, right. if it's something that your own followers, you know, the, your partisan followers would have no problem with. So that's important to identify who your audience is. Well, we have two minutes left. Uh, do you have a closing comment you'd like people to know or, or you state about crisis communication in general? We'll give you one minute to just kind of Give your feeling, what you want people to know about it. Well, I just feel like we, I mean, it's a growing field. Um, I'm hoping that people, you know, will read Crisis Communication in Canada um, and and start to think maybe more critically, uh, you know, in a more uh, nuanced way about the practice of crisis communication. That what you're doing out in the field is informed by um, you know, the literature that's growing and growing in this really young uh, field that's tested, um, rather than always going with your gut. I mean, guts are good things sometimes, too. Um, but I think that was the purpose of the book, is to start to, you know, in 2017 when the book came out, to start to have that, um, that push towards uh, doing things in a more systematic way 
during a crisis or even in terms of prevention or, or you know, recu- recuperation later on. Well, and with that, we have come to the end of our show. Duncan, thank you very much for your your topics here. There's, it's very um, insightful, the book, uh, Crisis Communication in Canada. I recommend it to everyone. There's some great viewpoints in here and a lot of information. And uh, Duncan, thank you very much for sharing your expertise uh, on the show. I really appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me, Alex. No problem. And to everybody listening out there, uh, as always, everyone, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.